G'day everyone and welcome to Life in the Peloton, brought to you by Rafa, our title sponsor. I'm Mitch Stocker, welcome to this week's episode. I've got a great episode for you this week, Stuart O'Grady. Can you believe it? Big Stewie, got him on the pod. Great episode, sat back with him and just listened. I had so many questions I want to talk to him about, so much stuff from his career. What I really wanted to talk to him about was his transition and what he's doing now as a race director, the tour down under. The last couple of years, it hasn't really happened because of the pandemic, but Stewie's kept it going. The Festival of Cycling, that's what's happening right now, but the tour down under is such a fantastic race. It's arguably one of the most favored races from all the pros out there. It's a great race, and I wanted to get into that with Stewie, why it's such a great race, why it's quite a difficult race to put on because it's all the way across here in Australia. All the World Tour teams have to come across. There's different things they can and can't do, but what makes it such a great race? But before I did all that, I had to talk about his career. I could not ignore his career. Stuart O'Grady was professional for 19 years, spanning from 1995 to 2013, where he finished up his career in Green Edge. That's where we crossed paths, but I was well aware of Stuart O'Grady because I watched him as a young guy growing up. Before I was even cycling, I was watching Stewie on the Tour de France, getting the yellow jersey with Team Gann. Then I watched him at the Olympics, and then I got the chance to race against him, and then he was in my team. It was just amazing to be able to go through that transition myself. But I know everyone out there knows him from the television because he was an amazing rider, an iconic rider from the peloton over the last 20 years. Everyone's going to know him. There's so many great stories. I couldn't get through all of it, but I got through a hell of a lot. Well, pretty much all the stuff I wanted to know. Well, nowhere near as much stuff as I wanted to know, but I picked out the good stuff. Then we chat about what he's up to today, the Tour Down Under. You heard me mention that Now Life in the Peloton is brought to you by Rafa. They're our title sponsor. They're our partner this year. I'm really, really happy to work with them. But how it all came about, you might know that I worked with Rafa at EF last year when I was on the team. And also this year, I'm going to be continuing to work with them as a rider as well. But then they approached me and said, hey, let's do something together with the podcast. How about we sponsor the podcast? How about we do a little collaboration together? I thought, wow, that's a great idea. They said, let's get over to London. Let's learn a little bit more about what makes Rafa so special. I thought, okay, let's go. Let's go check it out. When I went across to London, they had me out early, 7am. I was in doing the laps, the inner city laps around Regent Park. That's what they're about, the community. Rafa's all about hosting rides from their clubhouses, putting on events around the world to bring people out on their bikes. That was a feeling I got that morning. 7am, there we are, the centre of London, doing these laps with people who just want to be out on their bikes from all different levels. Lots of life in the Peloton kit out there. We finished back at the clubhouse in Soho. I grabbed a coffee, went across to the headquarters, and once I got to the headquarters, I met the nuts and bolts of the company. The guys who were designing those cool kits, the people who were putting the pieces into place to make this company happen. I just went there and then, wow, this is going to be a great fit for life in the Peloton. And I started to understand what's so special about this company. It's about community, it's about passion for cycling, and of course, it's about kit, cool kit. Anyway, you know I love the company, you know I love the kit. Well, I love kit anyway, but I love good kit. So guys, go and check them out, rafa.cc. So happy to have them on board this year. Guys, I'm gonna bring in the episode now, Stuart O'Grady, sit back and enjoy this one. It's a real cracker.
All right, everyone, here we are. I'm sitting down with Stuart O'Grady, Australian cycling legend, but worldwide cycling legend, absolute household name when it comes to professional cycling. Shui, welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks, Mitch. Good to be here. Nice to see you again. It's great to see you, mate. And we're, we're now getting closer <laughs> again. We're both retired riders. I'm slowly catching up to you finally. Well, I think I've got a few years in your head, though. I'm just saying off air that, you know, I've, I've, I've got through that transition phase and uh, I'm enjoying not having to go out and ride every day. <laughs> In case anyone doesn't know, I'm just going to give a really quick wrap up. Stewie was 19 years pro, spanning from 1995 to 2013. He was on teams, GAN, Credit Agricole, Cofidus, Team CSC, Leopard Trek, and then he finished his career with uh, Green Edge. That's where we cross paths. He was six-time Olympian, first time went to the Olympics at 18 years old, and he ran Barcelona, Atlanta, Sydney, Athens, Beijing, and London. Four medals and one gold. Now... Before we get into anything, Stewie, I want you to listen to this audio and then give me some comments on this. And they're all together now. Watch out for the trackie, Stuart O'Grady. Goes to an impossible gap. Go typical track move through on the inside and gets onto the back wheel of Debian. He's right there, but also a good trackman, Van Bon, in third position. He was second in the points race at the Olympic Games in 1992, Barcelona. So these two riders know just exactly how to handle this kind of sprint. Grenoble, stage 14, very O'Grady up into second place, but look at Van Bon right on his wheel. So we've only got one stage winner this year in the Tour de France here. We've got two previous yellow jersey wearers and the rest just hoping for the slice of the glory. Debian, who was the yellow jersey, is being left on the front to be leading out the sprint here for northern France. But Calcaterra is a dangerous man and he's digging very deep there. He's holding no straight. No helmets back to neither and glasses inside. on the top O'Grady's of the head. The back Keep an okay Calcaterra now. This might be a good move for O'Grady. Van Bon has pulled out of it a little bit. He seems to not have the legs here and right on the line. I think the old track push there may have given it to Stuart O'Grady. Let's have a look from the top here. Calcaterra did appear to have this holding the barriers on his left but then came O'Grady and despite a slight move off There's the line at least a couple Calcaterra, of inches mate he got Easy. it by the width of his tyre well I'm just wondering if the judges might not like the action of Calcaterra there Paul well he did move off his line he came halfway across the road but you know the judges in fact have just decided to relegate him back into sixth place alright well the win means a lot to Stuart O'Grady he's with Paul Sherwin yeah, I was, mate, there was so much coming through my head in the last 20k. I was just like, I can't ride all this way and stuff it up in the last kilometre because I, I know I won't sleep tonight. And uh, the last few k, when a um, couple of a break took off in the last couple of k, I was getting pretty worried, but just played, just played cards and. Um, it seemed like you were doing an awful lot of work because every time somebody attacked, it seemed to be you who was chasing them down. I just didn't want to see someone ride off in front of the k to go and. Flick me by three seconds, you know, had to really uh, annoy me. So, you know, I was maybe doing a little bit much work, but there was a couple of other guys in there that wanted it to come down to a bunch of sprint as well. And All right, mate. I love listening. I've listened to it about 10 times in the last 24 hours, and I love watching that. <laughs> Tell me about that. Tell me where that was. Tell me about it. Yeah, that was 98 uh, Tour de France, obviously, stage 14. Yeah, I think that was my first, first stage win. So, been in the breakaway all day. Um, it, it was a stage that kind of suited me, but I was with a lot of riders which were which were pretty cunning old blokes. I mean, Van Bon uh, was, was the gold medalist in the uh, sorry silver medalist in Barcelona in the points race, um, just being Lombardi. So he, you know, he was really crafty rider. 
uh, Desbians, um, Calcaterra, whatever mm. his name was for Seiko, it was Chippo's old lead-out man. So, you know, they didn't come, come any more cagey and foxy. So I knew I had my hands full. But like I said there, you know, we, we were in the break for, I don't know, 160K or whatever all day. Um, got got over the last climb, which was a fair mountain. And then it was a big downhill, awesome downhill into Grenoble. And, you know, as happens most times in history, you ride together as a group. And then for some reason, everyone just stops working when you come into the final. It's like, <laughs> what's going on, guys? We've ridden all this way. Um, and, yeah, of course, you're tired. But, you know, I just – I still laugh when I watch it these days. Guys still are willing to sacrifice their own result and just watch two riders ride off into the distance. You know, it just doesn't make sense. So managed to keep everyone together. And I kept them motivated. I kept them motivated behind, just yelling at them and screaming at them. Um, something that I carried for the rest of my career, I guess. Uh you know, there's an opportunity right there, guys. You can win the stage. Like, come on. And slowly we brought them back in and, and managed to roll them. So uh, I guess that, that caginess, um, you know, I guess racecraft was always one of my fortes. I loved it. I loved the, the fact that you could rally other guys, knowing fair, fair income that at the end I'm going to beat them all in the sprint anyway. But I was, I'd be managed to get them to engage and, and to believe again and then to get at least get to the finish line together and then we'll see what happens. So, it was, yeah, it was, it was a pretty massive moment. I, the reason why I love this, look, okay, obviously it's a first, it's a Tour de France, it's a stage win the Tour, it's your first Tour de France stage win. So, it, there's lots of bigs on that. But what I love about that is it's your third year professional. You just won the yellow jersey for six days in that Tour. Um, massive stuff. Like, potentially, it might have been enough. You'd already been in a breakaway before that. You'd fought for the yellow, mm. you got the yellow, but you continue to fight on for that stage win. Um before that, you know, this is Gan. Sorry, this is going back to the very beginning. Stuart O'Grady, he starts with Team Gan, and in his first year pro, you were still on the track. You managed to get a stage win in your first year pro. That's really, it sounds like, it, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, it gets a stage win. That's really underestimated. To get a stage win in your first year pro, meanwhile, on the track, getting becoming World Teams Pursuit Champion. Second year, you also get another, um, another win and also go to the Olympics and get bronze there as yeah. well. So there's a lot going on. And then I wanted to go back to that second in your first tour behind your teammate, um, Frederick Vasseur, who took yellow as well. Yeah. Tell me about that stage, actually, because that was, what stage was that? That was stage five. He was away. Yeah. And you, it almost felt like you sort of won the stage, but he was away because he was away for so long on his own. Yeah, well, 90, that was 97. So that was my first tour mm. in France. I mean, you know, kind of just touching on what you said before, it was pretty... It was obviously very different back in those days, and I was because I was going six months track, six months road. Mm. I was almost um, a little bit of a novelty in the in the team, but um, you know, and again, to get a, to get a spot on a French team and their home tour was, was was really hard. I mean, you know, I upset quite a few old French guys that but you know, this little kid off the track has come and taken a spot in the you know the world's biggest bike race. Um, you know, relieving a Frenchman of his duties, it was, it was you know, I had to deliver. So, um, obviously, getting the rainbow bands, uh, you know, helped with with a bit of status. But mm. but back then, track track was track. You know, there was none of this going back and forth, mainly for the six days. But um, yeah, just kind of Chris Borden was obviously on my team and a massive influence of me getting into Gand in the first place. And he'd actually won the prologue. So, um, you know, we're, we're all, always kind of joking. I mean, my first few Tour de France's, Boardman won the prologues and bang, we're, you know, we've got the yellow jersey, I'm riding on the front behind Eros Poli and, and all these legends, you know. 
Um, I'm like, is, it, is this it really? You know, is it this hard? Because, you know, I was rooming with Boardman and, you know, he'd come in every day, you know, flicking the yellow jersey on the bed. So I had that from a really young, uh, I guess, a young age. But but early the early years were, you know, at Boardman, Fasur took the yellow. So my first tour, you know, I, I asked, used to ride around, um, you know, the training camps in Po with the French guys going, you know, have you ridden the, the Tour de France? Yes. You know, have you ever won a stage? They're like, no way. Yeah. You know, like, you're just a worker. So to kind of get that, um, second place behind Cedric, Cedric Vasseur, who's now the boss of Cofidis. You know, that was a, was a massive moment again. Um, we were riding with confidence and Cedric was a worker, you know, he took an opportunity. Mm. He won that stage, you know, first and second, yellow jerseys, yeah. again, yellow jersey onto another rider. Um, yeah, they were pretty cool days. Yeah, this, and then what I, you must have had such an influence in that team because when I look at the roster, the following year, you know, you had two more Aussies on there. Um, you got Hank Vogels on there. You got Scotty Sunderland. There was a um, Kiwi stagiarian, Chris Jenner. So, like, they must have loved your first sort of um, influence that you gave. Like you said, yeah, this this Aussie, this tracky, you know, you came in. But what you did on there, you obviously led by example because they kept following that trend and went with some more Aussies, you know, New Zealanders as well. So... Uh, that experience of yours you know in the beginning i want to talk about that coming straight across now I, I get the feeling the pathway for young aussies now or kiwis is getting a little bit easier because a lot of the pro teams are looking towards us because they know because of guys like yourself and before you phil anderson you know you've you've made the the australian name strong but back then coming into a full French outfit, like you said, you had Chris Borbin there. But apart from that, when you look down the flags in the roster, it was just French flags. And, yeah, you know, absolutely. So I guess, was there that influence you gave the team to go, hey, take a chance with the Aussies? Or do you think they just <clears throat> did that anyway? Oh, no, I certainly helped Hank. Um, obviously, Hank, Hank and I were great friends and, and actually living together in France. But Hank uh, rode, rode up in Holland. Um, yeah, it was a big influence in getting Hank um, to come down and join the team because I think, uh, you know, Roger Leger was quite well known for, for taking, which, you know, he would call, most people would call it a gamble or a risk taking on Anglo-Saxon, but Roger saw it very differently. Mm. He saw dedicated, committed, all-in kind of personalities which weren't there for, you know, you had one shot, yeah. you know, you had one serious shot at, getting and maintaining and, and keeping that contract, um, you couldn't afford to, to let it slip because there's 20 guys biting at the hills, you know, to, to get take your spot. So he knew that once we got in there, um, you know, we were, we were so focused. And then once, I guess, you got on board and, okay, this guy's this kid's good, then he's like, well, how, how do we keep him happy? Yeah. You know, basically just – Find, find your best mate or, you know, find someone you're really good friends with and you can work with and room with and ride with because we didn't have the laptops. You couldn't FaceTime home. You know, we're still writing faxes back in those days, Mitch. Yeah. You, you probably haven't used a fax in your, most of your life. Like, um, you know, it was very different times. So it was important to try and keep us happy. And, uh, you know, Scott Sunderland was already, um, you know, very well uh, integrated into Europe. Uh, he was brought on board as more of a climbing domestique role to help uh, Chris because Chris was still telling everyone he could win the Tour de France. wasn't why he was telling me behind closed doors, but <laughs> uh, certainly kept the French Franks flowing in. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, they, they were fantastic times, honestly. I mean, you you know, you, I learned language languages out of it. You you either, you know, we really got thrown in the deep end, and you learn how to swim very quickly. I mean, no one spoke English. Uh, French was what we spoke at at the table, and and then the team meetings. So um, yeah, you, you learn. That's why I got on the front so quickly because I couldn't understand the rest of the meeting. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure you're going to agree, but I think it's a real nice. Um, base that you is is often quite missed now um is that you know you come into an english speaking team most teams are speaking english now and it becomes very easy for you but i feel like you face a lot of problems late guys now are facing a lot of problems later on in their career that potentially they would have had to face early on in their career and decide mm. whether they wanted to do it or not and once you got through those first couple of years you're like i'm here to stay now you set this ground yeah. you know this solid um plate and you go from there um which it sounds like what GAN was, um, which was, I think, very foreign back in the day to be able to let you go back to the track and come back to the road, no? Yeah, look, I still had a bit of unfinished business on the track. Mm. So, you know, I was certainly thinking that Atlanta, for example, was going to be my last Olympics. Um, you know, I really hadn't didn't think much about going to the Olympics or representing Australia on the road. I hadn't really come into the equation yet. You know, I was still chasing that, uh, that track gold medal. Um, and Roger was fine with that, you know, and, and in a way, I guess that was his way of sustaining my future. You know, he obviously could see I had a bit of talent there. Um, you know, you don't, uh, I guess, get medals in, in any uh, track events if you haven't got some form of decent engine. So he was like, well, if you've got the engine, we just need to fine tune the rest. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can be the next Chris Boardman who, you know, I guess he probably thought I was going to go on to win more prologues. Um but I was probably just had that little too many fast twitch fibers for a prologue. Um, but yeah, it was uh, uh, good times. Well, now I'm glad you spoke about the track because I, I look, I could only pick out really four things I want to talk about from your career. And the next thing I really want to speak about is um, Athens Olympics 2004 gold medal with Graham Brown on the track. Um, and I've recently just gone back and watched what I could from this. But at the moment I watched this, it did blow me away. And my memory did not really fail me from what i remember was like i remember that stewie was sort of saving the day there at the end how is that possible you know and i was trying to think about it so i went back and watched what i could and this is what i the only bit i could find 15 laps to go um new zealand attack and brownie just won graham brown had just won sprint nine there was 10 sprints he'd gone all in to win this sprint uh he just done the sprint sorry he got second in it but he'd gone all in to secure the gold for you guys. You guys went to 19 points, second and third were on 10 points. But just as that, um, he throws you in, you sort of have a couple laps sort of easy as a, as a bunch sits up from the sprint. You throw Graham back in and uh, the Kiwis attack and Brownie starts to lose the wheel. The gap opens up and next thing you know, Australia's back on. I'm like, how'd that happen? And Stewie rides him back on, throws Graham in. Graham does, gets from Stewie from six laps to two laps to go, throws Stewie back in, and he does the last two two laps, comes from the clouds, gets second in the last sprint. It's amazing. You've got to go back and watch that. It, the commentary is in another language. That's in French, actually. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't care because I just love watching it. This, for me, was so great to watch. But the build-up for you, you still hadn't got the gold medal in the Olympics. Like you said, you'd gone away from the track for a few years and come back for this Madison, you know, not your, mm. um, I guess not your real event that you'd been doing before, not that you couldn't do it, but you weren't known for the Madison in those days uh, or previously. Tell me about 
2004 and what that goal meant to you and especially about coming back to the track program to get that yeah i mean look i I still shake my head in disbelief that that whole process even um you know got me on back on a track bike i hadn't been on on a track for six years so um, you know, I was actually uh, doing a motor pacing ses- session in Foix down in near Toulouse, and um, you know, obviously keeping a close eye on what's happening in the Australian camp, and 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 there was a yeah, I mean, there was a spot there. I mean, and I did have a bit of a background in Madison's with Brett Aitken. I don't think we were beaten very often, especially in Adelaide. Uh, got a couple of national titles back in the day just for a bit of fun, but. Yeah, hadn't been hadn't raced on the track for yeah, like I said, a long, long time. So um, I was already selected on in the road team, and I thought, well, why don't you know? If there's an opportunity, as long as I'm not really taking anybody's spot that is guaranteed a gold medal, or you know, if, if the Australian team's set in stone, then so be it. You know, because I have been on that side of the fence where you know you're knocking up forty thousand kilometres a year for a, a team's pursuit or a you know a thirty k points race. So I was pretty aware not to you know i didn't want to um you know really piss anybody off that that had been training their training with the national team year in and year out but there was a bit of a i don't know there was a gap there there was an opportunity mm. um so you know halfway through the, the 150k motor pacing ride we stopped for a coffee and and rock my mate who was my coach or trainer at the time said let's let's ring ring bannon and and just run it past him i went, yeah okay i'll do it when i get home he said no no you're doing that right now we're calling him now because he knew that if i got home i probably would have talked myself out of it on the way home like don't be stupid you know as if you're going to be able to ride the road and back and forth flew back home to, to france then back over for the track and uh you know but eventually we we got it over the line um and uh, you know, I'll never forget Ian McKenzie on the way out to the track and the bus. He just, he just, I, I went up to him before the start, and you know, when we quietly drove out there because I was more nervous than anybody. Yeah. I mean, they had nothing to lose, and he said, "Don't disappoint, <laughs> don't let me down." And went, just oh, what I needed. Man, no yeah. yeah, yeah, don't let me down. Uh, yeah, he was a man of very few words, but those ones stuck with me, that's for sure. And I went, "Mate, I'm not going to let you down. I haven't, you know." I was in really good form, yeah. um, and and although I was I was I wasn't confident, you know, I had no idea what was going to unfold. Mm. Um, you know, I was racing the best Madison riders in the world: Bruno Rizzi, um, Kurt Preschart, uh, the Spanish Leoneris, uh, the Italians. I mean, you know, these guys. This is what this was their bread and butter. Mm. So, um, but I also knew that I'd just ridden the Tour de France, so I'd, I'd, I'd done the best training camp of anybody. So. <laughs> Uh, you know, to rock up and do a 50k race, I was like, well, as long as I stay on my bike, you know, at least have a crack. And and yeah, I, I mean, uh, as soon as I got to the track, all the guy, the sprinters, you know, don't forget to turn left, Stewie, <laughs> as you ride up onto the track. And, you know, don't forget to not pedal. Yeah, you know, keep pedaling. Yeah, no, he, I, I could hear the laughs in the background and the giggles, and probably going, "What's this skinny little dude doing?" Honestly, but um. Yeah, I mean, I like I said, I had really good form, and and Brownie had just won the gold medal in the team's pursuit, and I'd controlled his uh, nighttime activities. He just asked him to give me two more days of his <laughs> life, and then he could go out and celebrate. Uh, that he did, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I, I I can honestly say there's not many races in my life where you kind of finish and you just went. I, I, of course, it hurt, but. I never hurt on the bike. I was just closing yeah. down gaps and just I was I was flying and I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is just and you just grow in confidence. Mm. And I knew the 
the Spanish were going to, you know, wait to the death and try and get their lap. So I was prepared for that. And anybody that moved, I just just tried to shut it down as quick as I could, and and it, and it just worked out. It was just one of those days. Uh, you know, it happens once in your, or twice in a lifetime. So. It was just good, glad it happened at the Olympics. <laughs> it really was one of those days because you, you did make it look easy in retrospect. Like, I'm watching on TV, I know that, but there was just a calmness about it. And even just things like that you don't see on the track is you're going 50 plus K an hour and you're getting out of the seat. I'm like, how are you still winding that up? Or how are you having the feeling of winding that up? Because if anyone out there doesn't know, when you're on the track and you're already going fast, you just accelerate in the seat. That's sort of what you can only do. But if you're mm. feeling fresh, you're just getting out of the seat. You're moving around. What did it feel like going back on the track after so long or just coming out of the Tour de France? These sort of sensations. You say you were fit, but you were road fit. You were climbing. You were t- oh, it felt faster. Yeah. It was fast. I mean, you know, I jumped behind the, the derny, the motorbike for training, and you're sitting on 60, you know, on these silk tires with no rolling resistance and an aero suit yeah. and just going, well, you know, like, Oh, yeah, oh, it, oh, it, oh. it felt fast. Yeah. yeah, like it felt really fast, and and I knew I was going fast because the motorbike couldn't go any quicker. And I'm, you know, you have little power slides every now and then. And I was just, I was having a hoot, and and you know, I'll never forget. Uh, well, someone said after that, um, obviously I wasn't looking, but the guys down in the pits, you know, there was Matty Gilmore, a uh, good friend of mine. You know, we go a long, long way back to junior worlds in 1990 and you know he was racing for belgium and he was one of the favorites actually for for the madison you know um and brownie said and i was just lapping around it pretty quick and yeah graham's like mate their jaws were on the floor like you just didn't stop and you know just going faster 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 <laughs> uh i was just i was having a hoot um and look again i i had nothing to lose either no there was no expectations over my head, I just had expect, a lot of expectations of myself. Yeah, it was it was it was amazing, and I think I might be speaking out of turn here, but I feel like for you, it was it was that that last sort of um, piece of the puzzle you really needed with the Olympics. Not saying that you didn't go on and then do uh, another two Olympics after that, um, but it was the missing piece, um, the gold medal. Yeah. So it was. Yeah, for for me, it meant you know it still does. It's it's you know the 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 gold medal from Athens and the rock from. From Roubaix, I mean, they're, they're two. For me, they are two different sports. Mm. You know, velodrome racing and Paris-Roubaix. I mean, you can't get any larger variant of, of surfaces to race on. Um, but they both mean just as much as the other. Uh, you know, I didn't grow up thinking I was ever going to race Paris-Roubaix, yet alone, um, you know, win it. But I certainly grew up wanting to represent Australia at the Olympics. Mm. You know, I grew up on around the velodromes. I was you know a couple of times world champion back in the day and and for me it was always just cool but it was the only way i was ever going to be able to get a gold medal mm. um you know I, I wished i could have well, got a little bit better in the road and in the olympics but that certainly wasn't my um my desire or my dream i guess whereas uh you know the olympics for me was, was always the most special thing well, I'm glad you spoke about Roubaix because that's the next thing I really want to talk about. We couldn't go past talking about Roubaix. Regardless if you'd won it or not, we'd be talking about Roubaix. Um, I don't know if I love that race as much as you, but I'm, I'm getting close. Um, I do love that race. But for you, um, ever since you sort of started that race, um, right back in your first edition, you did very well at it. Um, you know, you're always sort of around the top 20. Your first edition, you're 46, you know, and then your second edition, you're 16th place. You know, and then 20th and then 18th. So you're always right up there, which 
might mm. sound like, oh yeah, that's of course, but it's, it's really quite hard to do without problems, without bad luck, without just having a bad day. So it just mm. it just worked for you that race. Plus you love the race. Um, I want to talk about, tell me about, before we go about talking about 2007, tell me a little bit about what Roubaix meant to you. Um, because it's not really, it might sound for everyone watching on TV, oh, of course, I'd love to do Roubaix. But actually not all the pros <laughs> want to do Roubaix. You really do mm. have to love love it, weirdly. Yeah, I, again, uh, I, I blame that all on Roger Leger and, and my years at GAN because when I came into the team, uh, Gilbert Duclos-Lasalle had, had won it twice. So, uh, you know, he was 39, I was 20, I think, 21, uh, when I did my first Roubaix. And, um, you know, I, I'm not, I can't remember if he, I think he might have been defending champion or it was the year before. But, uh, you know, to have a defending champion in your team, it, like it, there was the Tour de France mm. and Peru Bay, and that is all that mattered to Gan. I mean, it was all the eggs in two baskets. Okay. Um, and of course, Greg Lamond had, had finished a couple of years early, so we didn't have, obviously have a, a guy for the GC. Had Fred Monkison for the sprint. So for 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 the team, Peru Bay was the number one race in the year, easily. So. Again, I just got thrust into this environment where... How did you even get a you know, start? How did you even get a start? Neo Pro, I, they just put know. you in. Yeah, I, well, I think, again, I, I, a good question. I mean, you, you, I must have must have understood the French that well and maybe they said, do you want to do it or you don't want to do it? I, I must have... I, I, I knew about Roubaix. It was one of the only races that ever got any kind of airtime in Australia on you know, nine's wild world of sports mm. because there were people breaking legs and bones <laughs> and carnage. So, of course, that's, you know, entertainment. So uh, from an early age, I, I, I had a, um, you know, I guess an interest in Roubaix. But when you're thrust into a team which has got the defending champion and, and a rich history of Roubaix, uh, I mean, it was just... Every, so I basically had to just convince myself that I love Peru Bay. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't really ridden one before. I'd never ridden a, on cobbles before. So... To rock up at your first, you know, training session and, and go bombing across the cobbles, I'm like, this is just stupid. Like, this is actually um, unrideable. Uh, and you know, again, the, the team meeting was case due. You just get in the first break. You know, that was my job. Um, and I managed to actually get in the first break and got caught. You know, rode the first hundred k of that that uh, headwind long straight section. Got to the cobbles and and you know got passed at warp speed by all the guys and and pulled out of the feed zone and just went that this is just ridiculous. Like well, this, what is this kind of race? But then I just had to keep convincing myself that no, no, I do love this race and I do love this race. And I think back then there weren't too many English stories, there weren't too many English reporters. Um, so they'd see an English person that could speak English at Perry Bay and go, you know, do you love it? And I'll go, yeah, yeah I love Perry Bay. Um, you know, without really knowing if I loved it or not, I was kind of forced to, uh, take up the challenge and, and year in, year out, it was the same people asking the same questions. And in the end to, you know, also convince your convince yourself and to keep your own determination strong, I'm convincing myself that I love Perry Bay. Because <laughs> it is a love-hate relationship. And actually one of the interviews, we, we had a team meeting before this year's Wet Roubaix, sorry, last year's Wet Roubaix. And I went back and had a look at um, – 2001, 2002, the last two wet Roubaix's. And I thought, oh, I'll just go and try and get a feel of it. And one interview came up of you. Um, and I ended up saving that interview and playing it in the team meeting because 
It was your mentality that I wanted the boys to take on. Stewie, what are you laughing for? This is crazy. <laughs> this is going to be awesome. This is going to be uh, is the definition of hell of the north. It's going to be a very big day, good adventure. What are you looking for when we go to the first section of cobblestones? Uh, to be in the first five. Uh, today is just going to be a day of um, tactics, but just to be in the first uh, five to ten riders pretty much in every section. If you know the roads are going to be so slippery and so muddy that uh, you know you just have to lose a bit of concentration, which is obviously going to happen at some stage along the road, and you know you could find yourself from you know the back of the bunch just swinging in the mud. On a day like today, it's really much more important to get into the first section of cobblestones in the first five or ten. It's almost going to be a race to the first section of cobblestones like the bunch sprint. Yeah, well, it seems to be, you know, most years when it's dry, it's, uh, it's pretty much the same thing. But now that it's wet, it's just going to be so much more important. And, you know, if uh, you've got to have a lot of luck on your side today, you know, hopefully no punches and a minimal amount of crashes, you know. It's a bit crazy. I talked to quite a few guys this morning and they all seem to be super motivated with this bad weather. <laughs> Yeah, it's sick, isn't it? <laughs> it's going to be fun. Thanks. For you, and maybe, look, for me, definitely, I'm, I'm assuming it's the same for you, you have bad moments in that race, but there's something weird that mm. brings you back to it, that you still want to... The race can conquer you so many times, but you want to conquer it. Um, I was never able to conquer it as holding the rock up, but you have those moments where you have a good day and you feel like, you yeah. know what, that's one to me, Rubey. Suck on that. But, you know... <laughs> Most of the time, it's the other way around. Tell me about the day that you conquered Roubaix, um, 2007, Team CSC, one of the hottest editions mm. you've ever had. Um, yeah, take it away. Yeah, look, it, it, it was just, again, uh, the form was, my form was really good. I, I think I'd ran top 10 in, in every race in the lead up, which was something that was the first time I'd, I'd done that, achieved that in, in my career. So, and and it's all the little races in the build up which really build you know build the pyramid for Tour of Flanders and Paris Bay. So you know if you if you were a classics leader and you, and that's what your mission is for for the coming season, that's every training ride from November, December, January. All you're thinking about is Paris Bay. You know, okay, Milan, San Remo. Hope I'm up there, whatever. But I'm not the fastest. Maybe everyone, you know there'll be an opportunity, but you're really aiming for that Flanders and Paris Bay weekend and and all those races in the build up. You know, if you get your head kicked in early on, you just kind of, you maintain that downward spiral. But if you come out and you get a result, bang, oh, it wasn't too bad, you know. And because, uh, especially, you know, not leaving up in Belgium, not knowing every road, I'd always come in, you know, questioning my abilities every year. I mean, you know, the, the Belgies and the Dutch guys know every single turn in a Tour of Flanders. You know, I was struggling to remember... The climbs, you know, if there were 25 climbs, Canaryberg, Tainberg, every Wolvenberg, it just, I'm like, which one's that again? Which one's that? You know, because I've already, I've raced now the whole eight months of the season without seeing any Canarybergs and you know, Wolvenbergs. The, wor the so, worst part would be you'd be on one of the climbs go, oh, this is the climb. Yeah. By then it's too late. Yeah. As soon as you, as soon as you go, oh, it's this run in. Oh, shit. Yeah. You know, and you're already three quarters of the way down the back. So, you know, I guess um, I used to ride Flanders and, and probably Rue Bay like, like a big points race. You know, that, that's what was in my head. Start at the front on the first section and, you know, manage yourself. Um, so it was just a, con it was a number of sprints into every section. Um, and then it was just elimination process. But, you know, most of the time it didn't come off. But when it did come off, it was pretty good. So, yeah, that year in 07 had a really good build up. 
again, having Cancellara in the team and a roommate, um, you know, we were just rocking up to races and you just, you know, I just had a job to do like everyone else in the team, deliver Fabian anywhere near the finish. Like I'm talking 60, 70, even 80K to the finish and just ask him if he wants a gel, you know, and go watch it on the TV. Um, but that year I was racing really, really well. And, you know, obviously knew that if, if, if you just got to rock up on the start line and in 100% health, fitness is good level and let's just see what happens. And that day, yeah, it was, it was um, super hot, 26 degrees and, yeah, the stars just aligned. 31 guys go up the road. It's a massive break. You guys have three there from CSC. Um, big, not a huge gap, five minutes. You get a flat Nuremberg, is that correct? Um, yeah. And then yep. you get caught by, I call it the big boys, but you're one of them anyway, but you get caught by the leaders and then you hang on. But you, you disappear from the TV. I don't know exactly what happened, but as soon as they catch the remainder of the breakaway, you head off with 25K to go. Um, mm. Run me through what sort of happened, what your mindset was once you got on that big break. Was it still all for, for Fabian? Were you always like, look, I'm just yeah, here playing yeah. a role? Oh, 100%. I, my, my job literally was to get as far as possible, as deep into that race as possible so that when Fabian does attack across, you know, I'm like last man standing. So if I was in the break at 31. We had Luke Roberts, Matty Breschel and um, Lars Mickelson came across a bit later, but you know, so those guys were basically riding themselves into the ground for me, mm. uh, getting me as far as possible into the race. And then, you know, I was to take over when Fabian joined me at the end, but things didn't go to plan. You know, the, the puncture in the forest, um, oh, I, I'm pretty sure there would have been a tear in my eye because, you know, that not only deflated my, my tyre, it deflated every, you know, little bit of confidence in my body. I mean, I thought that was, was race over, but... Um, Again, experience kicked in and instead of trying to time trial across, you know, on the flat roads after, I just went, well, that's it. So I just literally sat up and ate and drank and five minutes went very quickly, Mitch. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you, thought, you know, I turned around and bang, no, dude, here, comes the, here comes the dust cloud and the helicopters and, and I was deflated, you know. So I, I just found, found Fabian and, you know, looked around and there weren't a lot of riders. And, and I think looking back now, obviously with the heat, and only being five minutes, that the pace never really eased up. So it was just constant. You know, there was no section where the whole peloton just the, – the, the bunch of 30 was too big to give 10 minutes. I mean, I don't think they would have ever caught us. So uh, there was constantly pressure. Mm. Uh, and when there's constantly pressure, guys obviously get tired. So by the time they got to me, they were looking pretty average. Mm. Um, and then Boone and got his boys on the front straight away and just tried to, you know – to a bit of a, a counter punch, I think, because obviously I was out of the equation and they wanted to get rid of me um, and a few others. But I managed to hang in there. I'll never forget it. I, you know, I hung in there. The whole of Quick Step were going absolutely all in, and I started going back around riders, yeah. which were getting dropped. And man, my in my you know the tire pressure went up. <laughs> <laughs> so all of a sudden, I'm like, shit, I'm, I'm, I'm going all right. Like I've been out here all day. I'm not getting you know, I'd been out. Yeah. Well, I'd been out there all day, but I hadn't been working yeah. on the front and you know obviously physically and mentally very you know, good combination um and after that section you know i was still in there with fabian and he was cooked so after he gave me the green light um you know as i was having a chat with fabian uh steph investment and roger hammond attacked and i just saw them caught my eye and fabian gave me the green light to have a go and again just jumped across to them and because we still had 
Um, Matty out in the front. Uh, I think Lars was out there attacking as well. I kind of zipped across again without having to work, and things just fell into, into you know fell into my lap. Like not that easily, but uh, <laughs> again, there's an opportunity in every section, every cobbled section. I'd get one further and look around, and the guys were literally just fading, like you know, covered in salt and just looking really average. And I'm like, man, I'm I'm actually feel, and I was feeding off that. Yeah. You know, you have to feed off that. You've got to look for the weaknesses in the, in the guys around you. And all I was getting was that, man, he's knackered. This guy's he's knackered. You know, and and it was just I was getting a lot of confidence the further we went. It's incredible, mate. You tell tell just lastly on this, just before we move on, tell me about the last lap when you knew you were there. You know, the infamous velodrome. Um, if you can yeah. remember it, I'm sure you can. But <laughs> yeah, no, I can remember it. Um, yeah, look, obviously, I'd ridden in there on a few occasions before, and and I, I'd be lying if I didn't. You know, the, there was many occasions when I've ridden in and a couple I got or uh, delayed and. Mm you know, cut off the off the result sheet, which I still think is really cruel, by the way. I think if you get to Roubaix, you should be classified no matter how far uh, in the time limit you are. Totally. Um, but, you know, and I'd looked over a few times and guys, are, you know, going up onto the podium to get their rock. And I'd go, oh, man, that, oh, you know, I guess it's just not for me. And, uh, you know, I had my wife, Anne-Marie and, and Seth in Roubaix Velodrome who had never been to Paris Bay oh, before. Gosh. So we had a, really? a holiday... We were on a train to Disneyland Monday morning, which I'd had planned. So, um, you know, I knew Emery was in there with Seth and, uh, you know, you just have all this stuff going through your mind and, and um, yeah, it's just, I guess for me, it was just don't, A, don't get a puncture, um, you know, uh, but to be honest, it's just a blur. It's just, it, and that day I can tell you, I, I was hurt every pedal stroke. I was on the absolute edge of, of cramping. Um, and, you know, again, when I was on my own, I was, I was going at about 80% on the cobbles. And then as soon as we'd get off the cobbles, because I knew behind me they'd be attacking themselves on the cobbles, and then everyone sits up and analyzes who's left and grabs a bottle. And I'm going right every second there. So, you know, which you, you, know, which you do see on the footage, every section when you come off the cobbles, then I sprinted um, to get my speed back up and, and just trying to grapple away at seconds. And I knew once I got it to that magical minute mark on the whiteboard behind that the guys behind would start racing for second. And yeah, it's pretty much what happened. So from then in, it was just, yeah, just get in the velodrome. Don't slide out on the, you know, the, the dust and the tires as you come into the velodrome, which has happened in the history. Um, and then it was just suck it up. Just just enjoy every every pedal stroke. I think I did bloody, um, you know, victory salutes for the last third of a lap. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's one of those moments, and you obviously realise it's happening, but it, you know it is like you're having an out of body experience. You know, you know they're the special ones. I'm a bit of a newcomer to bike packing. Swain Tuft introduced me to it about five years ago when I pretty much rocked up on my road bike with a bit of extra width on the tyres, and he was laughing at me. I didn't have any bags on my bike either. But as the years have gone on, I've started to learn a little bit more. And one of the key things to bike packing is the bike bags. The right bags on your bike make the trip that much better. And I've started to use Restrap. Last year, I really got fully kitted up in Restrap stuff when I did the length of Sweden. And I've continued to use their bags. Frame bag, saddle bag, front bag, the works. It's awesome. 
The best thing about Reefstrap is it's all handmade in-house in the UK, Yorkshire, which allows them to experiment with designs. They can change things, they can customize things, but also they're all bikepacking enthusiasts. They live and breathe bikepacking. So you know the stuff's awesome. I know it's awesome because I've got it myself. Go across and check it out yourself, restrap.com, R-E-S-T-R-A-P.com, and chuck in the 10% discount code PELOTON10, P-E-L-O-T-O-N-10. I know you're going to love this stuff. Trust me on this one. Go and check them out, restrap.com. Now, let's just get back into this episode. All right, well, let's just jump forward now to um, Green Edge, which is where you and I crossed paths. I had a great, I had a chance to race. First of all, I had a chance to watch you on TV and look up to you. And that I was watching those SBS highlights back in Australia when you were getting interviewed there with GAN, more so with Credit Agricole. I was like, oh, you know, the two are, you know, like a lot of the young Australians. Then I had the privilege or the chance to race against you. I was like, oh, I can't believe I'm racing against Stewie, you know? And then <laughs> I still remember racing against you in that skill Shimano that really sexy German kit, or was it Dutch? No, Dutch. Dutch, exactly. <laughs> I remember seeing you in, in Hamburg specifically. I was like, oh, there's Jewish. I say hi. I was like, oh, hey, mate. You're like, yeah, hey, mate. Yep, out of my way. Um, <laughs> but no. I would the, never have said that. <laughs> the best part for me was finally getting to race um, pretty much with all my sort of heroes. You know, I looked up to you guys a lot. Um, obviously, from back in the when I was a young guy watching on TV, but more so once I became professional to the way you guys raced, the way you guys did it over here. And I looked up to you for examples, you know, um, and then moving into Green Edge, which I thought was, whether it was clever, whether it was thought out like that or not, I thought it was a really cool move for us young Aussies, myself, Luke Durbridge, um, Michael Hepburn. We got the chance to learn off you guys firsthand. Um, What was that like for you almost coming full circle it was at the end of your career but then you got came back into an australian team and you got these young guys you know sort of looking up and you know trying to get all this experience off you was that a good thing for you was it something you enjoyed what was that experience like coming back into green edge yeah and no, i i think you've kind of nailed it i mean it was it was i was at the you know the full circle of my career I, it, it was really um it was a massive decision to actually leave Leopard uh, and to come across to Green Edge. I mean, you know, I was happily, I just moved my family to Luxembourg. Um, you know, we had a home there. I was, you know, probably set, see myself settling in for a few years. And, um, you know, we'd made the big move uh, with the Schlecks and Fabian and Jens and we'd, you know, gone to this dark side of a team, and, you know, which, which, uh, Bjorn still thinks that we conjured up and that, you know, I remember Bjorn calling me saying, I know you've signed with him. I'm like, I actually haven't yet, Bjorn. And, and I wasn't really intending to, that, you know, here I am. I just want to see out the last couple of years of my career as quietly and nicely as possible and, you know, get a few more tours under my belt and, you know, whatever, another Roubaix or, um, and, you know, all of a sudden we're seen as defecting to this Luxembourg national team but for the Schlecks it was like myself with Green Edge you know you, you can't you don't understand it unless you're the person on the seat in the Lycra who's ridden and raced all your life and, and there's an opportunity to go and ride for a, an Australian built team I mean it was my dream for as long as I can remember back to being a cyclist was I know one day there's going to be an Australian team and I'll, I'm really going to go shit I wish that was around when I was racing 
And, you know, again, and I'll never say it enough, the thanks that we need to give Jerry Ryan for for funding it, Um, but being so such a passionate, good bloke to, you know, spend a lot of his kids' inheritance on, on, you know, the the cycling hopes of a few Aussies and and international guys and girls. I mean, it's, you know, he made that happen. Um, And Shane did call me when I was in Luxembourg. I was actually having my birthday and the Schlecks were both in my house when he called. Um, you know, uh, saying there's an Australian team and we'd love to have you on board. And, and you know, I sat down and, okay, uh, tried to process what he told me and then just said, look, you know, can I call you back tomorrow? I've got Andy and Frank downstairs having a beer out of my fridge. It's not a real good look if I go down there now and tell them you're, about this phone call. So, um, and I thought about it and I called Shane back and said, look, thank you, but um, no, you know, I'm, I'm just there's just too many too many changes uh and you know i guess it was a bit scary like you know again we just come off a season where i think fabian won the flanders roubaix i mean we just you know we had the most amazing time uh the schlecks were both on the podium for both first time in history the pair of brothers are on the you know on the podium and and i was a team captain and uh, you know every race i'm coming up to we're, we're killing it so it was making me look really good um and i was having a lot of fun um, because the team, the team. Sorry to interrupt, but I remember a good friend of mine joined that team as well, Robert Wagner, and yeah. he was coming back and telling me he came out of Skill Shimano, so it was like a world was opening for him. The team really launched as well, a bit like Green Edge did. It was mm. a new outfit, so the, the beginning yeah. of the team was all exciting too. Oh, it was massive, and and you know Flavio Becker, who's you know very wealthy businessman in Luxembourg. Um, you know, he threw a lot of money at it and, and we had the best of everything. You know, we had Mercedes on board as a sponsor. Like we had cool looking bikes. We had cool looking cars. We had cool looking trucks. I mean, you know, when when they, when Brian Nigard tried to get put a scarf on me, I said, that's enough there. Like a blow up. <laughs> but, you know, um, we, we, we had the best clothing. Like it was just, it was like, you know, he wanted it to be like a Premier League team and, you know, fly around the country in suits to bike races and, and just do things a bit different and, and maybe bring a little bit of class to a bike riding team, which doesn't really last, doesn't work. Everyone's too skinny. Um, but, you know, it, it was a it was a pretty cool, exciting period. Um, but, yeah, like I said, I, I thought about it for a bit longer, the Shane proposal, and Jerry actually called me. Um, and just said, look, you know, I really, really want you. You're the first name on my list. I want you to give my, not my, you know, I want you to give my team all that experience, which is in between those years, uh, and just you know, and just come and um, just feed that on and and teach these young kids whatever you know, just to 19 or whatever, not 19 years then, but a lot of years of professional cycling and. Um, you know, pass as much of that experience on to the young guys. And I went, you know what? Straight away, I just thought um, I, I couldn't see myself being at the next tour down under, being, you know, called up onto the start, the team presentation, and there's Stuart in the Luxembourg team, you know, and then, then there's Green Edge and the fans would have gone crazy. So, you know, I I guess it came, it did, it was full circle. I'm like, I'm actually, no, I have to be on that team. I actually have to be on that team. This is the perfect way to to just finish my career. Um, and, yeah, I'm really glad. It, you know, it was a bit of a mixed bag there at the first training camp, as you can remember. <laughs> yeah. um, but somehow it, it sorted itself out. And, you know, next minute, Gero's national champion, Tour Down Under champion, Milan San Remo. Uh, yeah, that, that was a fantastic period. And, 
the longer we went, the better we actually got, um, which of course sounds like common sense. But when you had so many big egos in one team with Robbie and Cookie and, you know, guys have been fighting against, the, you know, we've all been fighting against each other for, for 15 years, throw them all in the same team and here's the one outcome. Um, everyone just went, you know what, let's just do this. Let's do it how it should be. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we had, we had some cracking years and you know, winning the team's time trial with, with Green Edge, you know, in Nice and just to be a part of that that stage, you know, and at 40 years of age and still getting to go up on the podium and, and also having a good day. You know, it's it's one thing to do a team's time trial and win and, you know, you get dropped after 10K. But, you know, I had a bit of input still. And, and for me personally, it meant a lot to kind of finish on a really good note. Uh, and, yeah, it was just it was a great couple of years. It sounds funny for people out there listening thinking, yeah, of course Stewie would have a good day, you know. Like, why wouldn't he? But it is a team's time trial is a fickle thing and it doesn't matter who you are. Those things hurt unless you're, you know, Jan Ulrich or Fabian Cancellara. <laughs> well, if the problem is the... with me, I think I'm normally on the front from the prologue or thereabouts for the first few, three, 400, 500K of each stage, you know, of the first day of the tours. So by the time we get to the team time trial, it might only be stage four, but I've done yeah. 300Ks on the front. <laughs> so I'm normally already hurting. Exactly. And then, look, you were there for a couple of years. In 2013, you decide to, to hang it up. 19 years, as you said. Um I just want to quickly touch on the transition. It's something what I'm going through now because I really do want to talk to you about Tour Down Under. This is something why I really wanted to talk to you about the whole podcast, but I just could not ignore those special bits. I had to talk about them. <laughs> Let's have a I'm quick talk about, <laughs> talk about the transition. Um, you know, just as you decide to step away from in 2013, I'm understanding that now. What you know? How was that for you? Did you take a bit of time for yourself? How was it getting out of that routine? You know, how was the change yeah. not only for yourself but for your family? You know, for your wife, for your kids. They'd only known you as well. Your wife had known you a bit before, but you know, for a long time, she'd mm-hmm. known you as the pro athlete. You know, the superstar pro. However you want to put it, that's true. You'd live this life. Everyone knew who you were. Suddenly, you're stepping away. Mm. How was that transition, you know, physically, but also psychologically? How have you found it? Yeah, look, it's a great question. And I mean, you know, you hear more and more about it, which is a good thing because, you know, anybody that says they're not struggling out of a transition when you've come from, I guess, the spotlight, which, you know, the privilege that we've had, uh, the life we've lived, um, you know, you kind of go from the top of the top floor back to the ground floor. Um, and you don't know why you don't understand it, and and, and you know it, it's hard. It, that there's certainly challenging times, but um, you know I've got to say after racing and riding for so long that I had no no I guess hesitation or fears about not doing the bike riding part. I was just worried about I guess what the hell am I going to do? How am I going to keep myself busy, occupied? Like you know you you your world just changes overnight. Um, and, you know, coming back to Australia was, we wanted, you know, wanted my family to be around my family more and, we, you know, my, my parents had barely seen my kids and, and, you know, we kind of disconnected there and as you get older, those things certainly become a lot more important and your priorities change and, and, you know, as bike riders or any top level athlete in the world, it is a very selfish environment. You know, it is just about you and your bike, or if you're a tennis player, it's about you and your tennis racket. Um, and you can't maintain that level of professionalism if, if you know, if you're at 98%, you have to be 100%. Um, so it was really nice to be able to come home, 
you know, Jerry gave me a pretty good bit of advice. He just said, take your wife to lunch for a year, you know, and, I, and I'm pretty sure we weren't far off, but I don't think we missed too many. Um, but, you know, just going going to lunch was something you, we just never did as, as, you know, maybe in the off season, but, uh, you know, go to lunch in, in the middle of July <laughs> or on a Perry Bay weekend was certainly uh, was different. But, you know, it, it is strange and, and to wake up and not, you know, just put your kit on and, you know, hit the espresso machine a few times and just get out there and ride no matter, you know, rain, hail or shine. Um, uh, it does take quite a while to, um, I guess, transition mentally. Physically, it, I actually enjoyed not waking up hurting, I've got to say. Um, you know, not having pain as part of your life. Uh, you know, you always got um, sore legs or a sore back or, you know, I mean, that's just part of sport, any sport really, but I, I enjoyed just not not waking up being sore. Um, I do I did miss being really fit, you know, just being super fit. Uh, it's probably one one of the things I, I miss the most. Um, as you know, just going up a climb in the big ring at thirty k an hour. You know, you know, obviously not too steep, but uh, you know, just that feeling of power and being able to punch up a climb. You know, or uh, just going fast and maintaining it. Yeah, the ability to also weirdly comfortably hurt yourself. I don't know if that makes sense, but you're going up a climb, like you said, you, you're comfortably on, let's say, a threshold, and then you can decide to get out of the seat and sprint and not <laughs> completely implode and have to get off your bike or whatever, you know? it's Yeah, well, it's certainly much more imploding these days, I oh, tell you. But um, I still get a bit of a rush going downhill, so thank God, uh, you know, you don't need to be fit to go fast downhill. Um, but, you know, I guess, uh, you know, I'd always hoped... Getting back to the transition, I immediately set my focus on the Tour Down Under role. Obviously, being a local um, boy, uh, you know, being a part of this race since its inception, winning the first one, you know, for me, knowing every road, knowing the professional world as well as I did with the connections built over, you know, the previous 19 years, it kind of, I really thought that would that would fit um, my personality and my experience. So, you know, that worked out. Um, unfortunately, hadn't banked on a on a pandemic and, and a you know two words COVID nineteen. Um, but you know it's it's it is what it is. And as much as I'm sick of that saying and most other sayings as well, yeah. Uh, you know, just like a, a sporting career with an injury or a crash or a setback, you analyse, you refocus, and you get on with it. You know. So yes, we've had a puncture in the Arenberg Forest, but I'm still here. Uh, the event's not going anywhere and we'll just keep on riding. Um, so, you know, we've been lucky enough, fortunate enough that the government here in South Australia have um, supported the, the Festival of Cycling because it would have been really easy for them to to just pull the pin on on that. So we've kind of kept the heart beating in Adelaide and, and you know, throwing the whole Tour Down Under team the money. It's pretty much, this, you know, replicates the World Tour race, but just on a domestic level. So... It's been a really good learning curve for me. Um, you know, I miss the the world tour. I miss um, you know my friends and my mates, which I haven't seen for a couple of years. Uh, feeling pretty disconnected from the sport in general, just not being able to get around the teams and you know walk up to a team bus and and see the guys. Um, but you know, I know that we'll be back bigger and better. I've had a couple of years now to plan mm. for twenty twenty three, and you know I've got a pretty exciting uh, route lined up. So. 
um, yeah, I'm just I'm just really looking forward to the future. We're you know hoping to take this race to a whole new level. Let me just nitpick a couple little things that you just said there. I want to talk about Tour Down Under first before we go back and talk about a race director. But just so every, anyone out there who doesn't really know why we love Tour Down Under so much, they think, oh yeah, that race over there in Australia, I know it's a, it's a kickoff race. Why is Tour Down Under different You know, to any other race in the year? It's a special race. Um, positively and negatively, you might think some people, because there's certain restrictions, you can only do so much at Tour Down Under for certain things. You know, It's so far, so it restricts maybe time trial bikes. It's early in the season, so it designs a different style of race. Tell me a little bit about Tour Down Under. I'm talking about the World Tour race now. Um, you know, why it is so special and why it's it's so attractive to a lot of teams to come out and do it. Yeah, it's, it's a good question, Mitch, but, you know, it's, it's a really, really easy um, answer. And, and mm. you know, the critical part is that the teams, once they fly down here, um, you know, they're based at the one hotel, which, as you know, being mm. a bike rider, that, that is the critical ingredient into yeah. a great pizza is having an awesome accommodation you know so so the guys are all based in the hilton uh you know central in the center of town they can hop on the tram you know and 10 minutes later they're you know working on their the european skin tans which coming out of a winter can be quite uh, dangerous for your vision so um you know but the guys get to ride around they, they train um you know they're so well supported the fan down here the fans down here are, um, are passionate they come from all over the country they can walk into the Hilton Hotel at any time of the day and see Peter Sagan walk past or yourself or, you know, whoever they idolise. Um, and, and it just works. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a, it is a great race. Um, I know for a fact that all the teams, it's probably certainly in the top two or three of their favourite races of the year because, you know, of course it's not the Tour de France, but, it's not quite the traveling circus. It's the circus, but without the traveling. So anytime you can finish a ride or a stage, rock up to the same hotel is a massive win. And the fact that it's summer, you know, the South Australia normally turns it on. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty good down here. And, and the guys look at the end of the day, they're clocking up awesome kilometers, mm. which again, um, you know, I'll never forget when, when I was racing Zabel down here. I mean, these guys would be, um, you know, going riding at 7.30 in the morning and riding till 7 o'clock at night, obviously with breaks in the middle, but they'd be going for a ride, you know, a couple of hours before the stage, racing the stage and then going for a couple of hours after. So, you know, there's a reason the guy won so many Milan San Remos. They're, they're clocking up 280, 300 kilometres a day. Um, and, then, you know, it's just all putting it in the bank for, for those big occasions. So for the guys, for the classics, it's a really important part of their preparations for the year. You know, they're all focused on, um, you know, obviously San Remo, uh, Flanders, Roubaix, uh, and you know, now we seem to be getting more GC-ish kind of riders to come coming down here because they just know that it's just such a good brand. It's such a, um, you know, it's a safe environment. It's a good race. Mm-hmm. Racing's not too crazy. Um, you know, the mountains here are, well, are only hills. They're not mountains, so. You know, it's it just works, and they will love it. So we're just really, um, really hoping twenty twenty three we can get get uh, get the world tour teams back down here and and kick it all off again. I think that's the right exactly what you said. It's it's, it's a beautiful race for many aspects. As a, as a rider, you get that feeling from the crowd. But as a as a, a race in general, you're trying to get points. It's accessible to get points for a GC yeah. guy. You don't make the stages ridiculous. They're hard enough. But if you're just a you know, a fat bastard like me, you can still get through it. Um, 
and also it's it's just from that one hotel like you said it's very easy i love you know probably my favorite part of the whole tour down under is feeling like you're a president when the police escort happens and you're <laughs> roaring through the streets of adelaide at like 150 in this massive epic 3k long convoy i mm. love that you know how that's been able to happen i, I just the police just get on board and they just love it so yeah. you do feel very special there um but as a as a race director itself how has that been for you transitioning into that role um actually what the hell is a race director explain exactly what that is because i've got this idea that you know these race directors is it just literally designing routes you just go you know what i've got my best routes i'm just going to plan them and that's race director jump out of the sunroof wave that red flag and that's sort of it i isn't wish it? <laughs> i wish mate oh look the last two years i'm not sure what a race director used to be but uh, a race director through a pandemic is very challenging <laughs> because <laughs> Um, obviously, there is restrictions. I mean, yeah, look, we've got an incredible team here. I've been yeah. very, you know, I'm so lucky that, uh, you know, there's a lot more to it than obviously sticking your head out of a sunroof um, and, you know, looking cool as, you know, Prudhomme and the Tour de France. But, you know, r- race design is one part of it, and that's probably my favourite part. Mm. Um, you know, my next favourite part will be actually seeing the guys race on it because I've, you know, I'm designing these courses where, uh, you know, as a past rider, I would have been excited about a finish like this or, you know, yeah. going down this road or this climb or this descent. So I'm really looking forward to how seeing how the World Tour guys race it. Um, but look, it, there's so many pieces to the puzzle and it's literally that. It's like a thousand-piece puzzle and every day we'll have little issues and you've just got to work around them and deal, deal with them as they come. And they don't stop coming uh, until after the finish of the event because there's – you know, there's obviously accidents. There's issues that happen out on the road. There's um, obviously with the pandemic, we're, we're having problems with uh, close contacts now and people mm. which would normally be, you know, race radio, for example, um, something like that, which is quite a unique uh, job description. Uh, you know, you can't just call in mum and dad to come and do race radio. So you've got, you know, specific roles for specific people which don't do it year in and year out all year round especially in Australia. So it, it's just challenging, but um, it, it, it's all coming together and hopefully, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll maintain it until 2023. And with the Festival of Cycling, it's, you know, again, it's not quite where we want to be, but for me personally, it's just great to for, for the young Australians, the guys and the girls to come and race against the likes of Richie Poor, Rowan Dennis. Um, you know, Simon Clark's going to be down here uh, you know, uh, Durbo's coming back, Cam Meyer, um, and you know, for the fan, for the cycling fans around the country, they've at least got an opportunity to come down and pat them on the back, and you know, recognise recognise those guys and girls, um, you know, for what they put in for the past season, and and at the same time gives young and up and coming kids, I will call them kids, uh, you know, Luke Platt, uh, Kel O'Brien got World Tour contracts out of the Festival of Cycling last year, so. Yeah. You know, the cycling eyeballs around the world are watching this event. Um, it is the only road race on at the time. So, you know, we've designed the courses to be nice and short and sharp and entertaining. Um, and at least we can, you know, at least we can run an event and, and have a bike race because at the end of the day, all we want to do is watch the kids race their bikes. That's exactly true, mate. Last year I was over there in Europe in the winter and all I wanted to do was watch a race and I was so thankful 
that the festival of cycling was on well tour down under in my eyes was still happening and yeah. just as a fan of the sport i loved watching it so i know everyone's going to really enjoy it this year and i'm glad that you've put the work in to still make it happen not only for the fans but also for the young guys exactly what you said that's where i sort of cut my teeth as well getting yeah. a chance to race against guys like yourself at the top level so yeah, it's important i mean there's not a real, you know there isn't a real lot of racing going on in australia at the moment it's it's tricky so and it's expensive you know australia is a big country so for teams again who are you know mainly what you see in australia is development teams and development foundations and that's fantastic but for a for a small team on a small budget with mum and dad as manager and and you know everyone wants the best for their guys and girls but you know to bring a team over from wa or from the gold coast it costs a lot of money so um you know they're investing in these young girls and guys as future and and an opportunity is there to race against a couple of their heroes i'm sure they've got posters of them somewhere in their garage or their or their indoor trainer room or whatever but um you know the fact that richie and and, and rowan and, and all the guys have also made the sacrifice and and have done 14 days of hardcore quarantine before the rules changed you know chapeau to those guys as well um because it'd be quite easy for the guys just to stay over in Europe and go, hey, it's too hard, you know. So, look, I think everyone's just giving – everyone that loves cycling and is passionate um, is doing everything that we can to deliver something. And, yeah, we're just trying to keep uh, keep the wheels turning, so to speak. Awesome, mate. I can't wait for it to be on. And, um, mate, I bet I've loved chatting with you today. We've only just barely scratched the surface, <laughs> but how good was it? <laughs> No, it's been fun, Mitch, and yeah, there's there's a lot of good memories out there. It's it's great to have a chat, and um, yeah, I normally don't sit at, sit in the kitchen table and talk about uh, Perry Bays and Olympic Olympic gold medals. So, you know, I'm not going to lie; it's nice to reminisce and 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 laugh and and talk about those times. But yeah, I think uh, I think we'd need a few more hours if we're going to touch on you know some other stories. But uh, it's been great to catch up. Thanks, mate. Like I said, what an episode. I love talking to Stewie so much. He loved going back and reminiscing about all that stuff as well. I hope you enjoyed that. It's the Festival of Cycling on at the moment. They're keeping the ball rolling there, and I'm really hoping Tour Down Under will return next year because that is the pinnacle of the season starting in Australia. You've got to start with TDU, and then the season rolls from there. It's been a bit funny because it hasn't been there the last couple of years, but it's still just been bubbling away there with the Festival of Cycling. So I'm really looking forward to seeing Stewie try out some of his secret tracks that he's got in his mind, and next year it's going to be back on the cards. Like I said, this episode was brought to you by Rafa, our proud sponsor this year. They're all about growing the sport, making people fall in love with cycling as much as possible, and you know you've seen that through the events that they do, and also through the content they're capturing with Lockie Morton, his alternate tour, the other videos they do with the Gone Racing series on YouTube. I'm sure everyone's seen those awesome videos. I've been on a couple of them. It's pretty fun. Guys, until next week, next week I've got Talking Luft, Stewie's on there, the extra DVDs package. You know that. I don't know what he thought of it, but we got him on there. We had a bit of a laugh. What do you think of last week's new Talking Luft? couple new questions in there. Alan Aquani, if you haven't heard that, Go across and have a listen to that. That was last week. Next week will be another episode with Stuart O'Grady. Guys, I'm so happy to be back. Life in the Peloton is up and rolling. 
but it wouldn't be up and rolling without Lara, who's doing all the work behind the scenes to make this podcast come to life. This episode was produced by Will Jones and, of course, our two sponsors, Restrap and our title sponsor, Rafa. Until next week, cheers. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.